And thank you, Eugene, for those prayers. And good morning, church. I've already had one shirt change this morning already, and probably another one before the second service. Um, do use these as a fan. We're keeping the lights a little bit lower than normal just to try to generate a little less heat. All right. So we continue in the Heaven and Hell and Everything in Between series today. We're nearing the end. And today we talk about the upside-down kingdom. Jesus speaks about what life is supposed to be like in this new creation. We're going to look at a parable that unpacks that. But as we've been going through this series, you might have had questions about, um, what about this or or what about that? I am not sure I can make sense of this passage. Um, We would love to hear those questions. And in two weeks' time, we'll be doing a teaching on those questions that come in. So you can scan the code. You can email the office directly, or you can email me directly as well. And we would love to speak into those things. Um, Today's talk itself is really based on some of the questions that have come up since this series started. So as we've been going through this series, we've been looking at the image on the left, which for many of us, it was for me, it was my concept of how the story worked in the Bible. And yet, if you look at Scripture, you really see the image on the right being what is a much more consistent theme of how God is working in the world. Um, I saw this clip today and uh, uh, last week, and I thought it might be a fun one as we talk about heaven and hell today. Let's watch this. What did you children learn about today? Hell. Well, that's what we learned about. I sure as hell can't tell you we learned about hell unless I say hell, can I? Well, the lad has a point. Hell, yes. Bart! Hell, 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 hell. Bart, you're no longer in Sunday school. Don't swear. <laughs> yeah, not a u- word we use very much at church, and yet we see this concept in Scripture, so we've been unpacking it. And the reason why that image on the left, I think, is not biblical is, one, it, it gives too much weight to hell itself, right? It makes our individual destiny the point of Jesus' work, and, and finally it portrays heaven and hell only as future realities, So today, we're looking at the parable in Luke 16 um, with the rich man and Lazarus. Let's have that reading now. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place 
so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they will not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if, even if someone rises from the dead. All right, thank you, Denver, uh, for that reading. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we dig into your word today, that your Holy Spirit helps to illuminate for us, God, that these are not just words on a page or words coming out of our mouths, God, but that you will connect them to our hearts, that you will show us, God, what they mean and how to live them out. In your name, amen. All right, I, when I was talking uh, about hell a couple of weeks ago, I had people ask me about, what, well, what about this story here? Um, doesn't it seem to communicate kind of this traditional idea? And so I was like, let's dig into it. And I'm grateful for the work of uh, Joshua Ryan Butler in this book here. I'll be leaning into a lot of his insights today on this passage, as well as some from N.T. Wright. So let's jump in. Let's unpack this um, passage. And so verse 19 and 20, we get the story with two characters. There's a rich man. And he lived a life of luxury. He's wearing the most expensive clothes. Purple and fine linen were the very richest things he could wear. I'm sure his wife had the finest handbags. And he was probably a religious leader. Jesus had just been talking to the Pharisees and confronting them about their love of money. We get the second character, Lazarus, and he is covered in sores. He has some type of skin disease. He's he's also disabled. He had to be laid at the gate of the rich man. So probably Lazarus' family and friends are hoping that he will be shown some mercy um, by the rich man getting some type of handout. His hope for his survival and his comfort is really in the rich man. Now, the rich man, we do not see or hear a name. Jesus does not give him a name. But the poor beggar is named, and his name is Lazarus. Now, this is not the first time you've heard Lazarus, probably. We also hear about Lazarus being a real person that Jesus raised from the dead, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But I think Jesus wants to highlight this is not just some poor person. This is a real person with a name who's living, and who struggled, okay? So in, in the real world, the rich man, everybody would have known his name. He probably wouldn't need any introductions, and yet Jesus does not name him in this story. See, Jesus is telling us through this parable a bit of how new creation is supposed to be, this upside-down kingdom, how life should be, not how life necessarily is. Now, the context for this parable, there's been four parables right before it. The lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son or the prodigal son, and the shrewd manager. Each of these stories talks about something or someone that was lost 
immediately before this parable, Jesus confronts the Pharisees, and he says, you cannot serve both God and money. And the Pharisees, who loved money, heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. And then Jesus launches into this parable. See, for the rich man here, his identity was connected to his riches. That's the only descriptor we have. The only adjective we get about him is that he is a rich man. Now, I am sure his identity wasn't always connected to his money. But at this point, it is. It's become the direction of his heart, the direction of his soul. It has consumed him. His life is connected to his wealth. And he loves his wealth more than he loves Lazarus. See, our love of God, this vertical connection that we see on the cross, is connected to our love of others, that horizontal bar. They have to be connected. We can't think, oh, I love God, and it doesn't matter how I treat others. And Jesus is telling us this parable to remind us of this connection. So the riches have come to define this man. Um, It's what he loves. And what we love is important. It guides our heart. It guides our life. It guides our soul. Jesus wants us to ponder that, press into that. Lazarus' name means God has helped. The rich man would not help Lazarus, but God is helping him. Okay, so three observations here. One, the rich man has no more riches, right? Two, the rich man still wants to live in old creation. He wants to live, even though he's died, as if things are the way he wants them to be. See what he says in verse 24. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Interesting that the rich man isn't asking to get to heaven. He's not asking to leave Hades. What is he wanting? He wants Lazarus to serve him. He still sees himself as above Lazarus. Send that servant boy Lazarus. Send that beggar Lazarus. Send him to help me. He wants to live as if things are still like the world he was living in when life was good for him when he had people serving him, the rich man is not remorseful, is not saying, God, I'm sorry, Abraham, I'm sorry, how have I lived my life? Actually, send that Lazarus guy, he can help me out, he can serve me some more. He's not asking for forgiveness, he's not regretting how he lived. A third observation is the rich man is called son. The rich man is called Son, We see this in verse 25. But Abraham replied, son, son. This is a tender term. This is a familial term. This is Abraham being gentle with him. Abraham doesn't say, yeah, you messed up your life. Look at what you have done. Abraham is actually quite tender with him. He calls him son, and he doesn't call him rich man, right? He's calling him to a deeper identity, an identity that the rich man has forgotten. God refuses to call him by his riches, but calls him by a personal familial name, his child. 
So this scene is basically God's love is being closed off by the rich man, right? There's this new creation reality that the rich man has not grasped a hold of. He wants to go back to old creation. He wants to go back to the life he led. And we learned a couple weeks ago that the gates of heaven are always open. It shares with us in Revelation 21. Okay, so those are three observations. Now I want to dig into the next verse. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set into place. So what is this great chasm? Well, some scholars think this chasm is between law and grace. Some others think it's more about the futility of self-centered living. Where will that get you? And there's a gap there between sort of our head and our heart. Others think it's this chasm between knowing about God as a concept, as an idea, and actually knowing God and being transformed by him. Those are all possibilities, but I want us to think about the timing of this parable. See, Jesus used the word Hades in this parable, and Hades was kind of the Greek word for Sheol. Sheol in the Old Testament in Hebrews, this place of the dead, it wasn't a big developed concept. It was, you are dead. And we learned earlier on in this parable that both of these people are dead. Now, we don't get a lot of description in Scripture about what happens when we die and what happens in between when we die and when Jesus comes back and we're all resurrected. Very little. There's really one main verse on that time, and it's Jesus on the cross when he says to the, to the thief who repents, today you'll be with me in paradise. One verse. So we don't get a lot of information between death and resurrection. We get a lot more what happens when Christ comes back and we're all resurrected. So this timing of this is in this sort of interim state between death and resurrection. So this man and the rich man and Lazarus are basically a conversation between two dead people. They're both buried at this point, and the location is Hades and not Gehenna. Gehenna, remember, is that word from the Old Testament and the New Testament so where the Israelites would, in the Old Testament, worship other idols and sacrifice their kids. In the New Testament, it is still this physical place outside the city where it's the city dump. Things are burned up. So I think it's important to recognize the context of what he's saying here in terms of this interim state. Because when Christ comes back, new creation will be fully reconciled, fully restored, and there will be no place for old creation, no place for evil, no place for oppression, and those things will go to Gehenna. There will be no place for this rich man's treatment of Lazarus. Okay? All right, second thing I want to jump into is this idea of torture or torment. Now, is God torturing this rich man? Is God torturing this rich man? Let's, let's look into this. First, it's, un, it's important to understand that this is a parable. And so not everything in a parable is meant to be taken literally. Like with the lost coin and the lost sheep, we are not coins and we are not sheep. Um, so I think it's helpful to understand 
what it's saying and what it is not saying, and to be careful about taking too much of a parable literally. But what does it symbolize? That's what we're going to look at in a moment. So I think this story, this parable that Jesus is teaching, is really, his point is, how we live now matters. What we love now, what we worship now matters. And yes, it has eternal results But the point is, is to change how you live now. N.T. Wright says this about this parable. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus is to be treated precisely as a parable, not as a literal description of the afterlife and its possibilities. So I don't think it's so much a story about who's going to heaven and hell, but it's about how we are to live now. If it was a story about heaven or hell, then what do we learn from it? If you're poor, you go to heaven, and if you're rich, you go to hell, right? And we probably wouldn't say that is the narrative of Scripture, and it certainly isn't. So we have to be cautious on taking it literally, okay? And if this was really heaven or hell, if Lazarus, if people in heaven can see those people being tortured in hell, probably not very heaven-like, right? So it's important to think these things through as we interpret it. But what do the flames of Hades symbolize in this? I think they symbolize a few things. One, that old creation is burned up. The rich man's riches have been burned up. And the love of money has destroyed the rich man. Okay? So second point, torment is different than torture. Okay? We might look at that parable and think, oh, God is torturing this person. I don't think that's the case at all, actually. Torture is inflicted from the outside. Torment is more of an internal thing. It comes from within. I can be tormented by my sin. I can feel guilt. I can struggle to sleep at night. But that's very different from God torturing me. Going back to verse 25 again, it says, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And that's to the rich man. And the word for agony here is adunomai. That's in the Greek. And it can also be translated as grief or anguish. And there's two other times that this word is used in the New Testament. One is earlier in Luke where Mary and Joseph have left Jerusalem And they realize that their son is lost, and he's not with them. And that's Jesus, right? And he was left behind in Jerusalem. And Mary and Joseph are in Adunomai. They're in anguish. They're in grief. They are troubled. The other time we see this word in the New Testament is when Paul is leaving Ephesus in Acts 20.38. And it says the people thought they may never see him again in Ephesus, and so they were Adunomai. They were in agony. They were in anguish. They were going to be losing Paul. So what was the rich man in anguish about? He had lost his wealth. Things had not turned out the way he planned. Something he loved, his money, was taken away. And he is in torment. It reveals his heart. And this is the other interesting word. What is the word for torment in this verse? It's basanos. Now, a basanos was a stone that jewelers would use to test whether a jewel was really quality or not. 
On the outside, the jewel might be shiny, like the rich man's clothes were shiny, but the basanos would reveal what was underneath. What was underneath the surface of the stone, was it real or not? And so this torment is this disconnect in this man. It reveals his heart. It reveals what is underneath the surface. The rich man continues in verse 27. He says, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family again. He is wanting Lazarus to serve him. And he is, he's not saying, I am so sorry for how I've lived my life. He's coming up with excuses, right? Abraham lets him know that his family has all the information they need, just like the rich man did. See, the problem isn't enough information, but the problem is the heart. He wanted God to give him a stronger demonstration of power. Maybe that will shake me free from my love of money. If I really see something powerful, then I will follow God. I will live that out. Then I'll be freed from my love of money and my injustice against Lazarus. See, he's still blaming God for his situation. It's actually blaming God. Joshua Ryan Butler says it this way, the rich man believes he is not the problem and God is at fault for not giving him a big enough display of his power. See, the rich man's heart is what he values and what he loves. It's what he is worshiping more than God. And there might have been a time for the rich man where his heart was still for God, And slowly but surely, his life became defined and identified by his wealth. Our hearts are the place where we worship things. Usually, the things that we end up worshiping are not bad things, but they can come to consume us. And Jesus says we cannot serve two masters. What we worship, what we really treasure, directs our lives. It directs our hearts. It leads us to how we will live. And it shapes who we will become. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, it's not a question of God sending us to hell. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. Like we said a couple of weeks ago, Tim Keller says it becomes the trajectory of the soul, becomes what we worship, becomes who we are. And it really is love refused. Hell becomes that separation from God, that reflection of actually how we've lived our lives. Let's come back to the flames. I think the flames in here represent one more thing, and it comes out in verse 28. The rich man says, I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. See, the rich man has five brothers, and I don't think that's a random number. Most scholars believe this is a reference to Jerusalem. How so? So Jerusalem is the capital of Judah. And Judah, with his wife Leah, had five sons. And so Judah being the capital of, uh, Jerusalem being the capital of Judah, it's a reference to those they would have thought, ah, this is about Jerusalem. And 
The five tribes are the sons of Leah and representing Jerusalem here. So if the rich man is Jerusalem, then Lazarus is outside the gate. He's poor, he's the beggars, he's the people on the margin that Jesus loved to spend his time with. So coming back to the flames, what happens about 35 years after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection? Jerusalem is destroyed in flames. Rome crushes it. It actually comes falling down. So the flames then represent judgment, not torture. It represents what happened to Jerusalem. And Jesus in this parable is warning Jerusalem. He's warning his people to live their lives differently. See, judgment comes before the full reconciliation, right? Right now, heaven and earth are separated, but God calls us to bring them together as he did, right? Pray that your will be done, right? On earth as it is in heaven to begin living out this new creation. When Christ returns, there will be a judgment and everything will be restored. Everything will be made new. Now, Jesus, I think, picks the name Lazarus for a very specific reason. See, the story of Lazarus, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And I think Jesus is telling this story pre-resurrection also for a very real reason. I think people needed hope. People saw that in Jesus' time, and we see it today, that this idea of Sheol or Hades, like, wasn't enough to inspire hope. It wasn't enough to answer the difficult questions. It wasn't enough to hold on to. So Jesus implants this idea of his own resurrection that is going to happen. How is this all going to end? That's why I think it's important that we unpack this parable because it really does have a difference for how we live now. To me, I find it very hopeful and very inspiring what Jesus is teaching us and how this is going to end up coming together, but also what difference does it make to us now and how we live and what occupies our heart. Jesus finishes the parable with this in verse 31. He says, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The rich man wanted a stronger source and a stronger display of power, and God actually gives it with the raising of Jesus Christ. He's hinting at what is going to happen. See, Jesus did die, but that was not the end. Three days later, he was resurrected. He had defeated death. He had defeated old creation, and he is the firstborn, the first fruits of that new creation that all of us get to partake in as followers of Jesus. His resurrection is the beginning of that new creation, and evil, oppression, abuse will be cast outside of new creation. See, Jesus overcame the grave. He overcomes the things that we also struggle with. He's the beginning of this new life, how the kingdom is supposed to be flipped upside down, really flipped in the right direction. And Jesus holds the power to make our worlds new, right here, right now. 
doesn't mean necessarily changing our circumstances, but changing us from within. And he invites us into that new creation. And John tells us in Revelation 21 that the gates are always open, that he wants to invite us in. And I wonder, you know, if that parable was told differently by Jesus, if instead of the rich man blaming God, instead of the rich man wanting to live in old creation, what would it look like for him to say, I messed up. I have not lived my life consistent with my love of God. But that's actually a question that Jesus gets to ask us. How might we live right now? How might we live differently right now? We can be bearers of God's new creation of how the world is supposed to be, meeting real needs in our city, in our families, in and through our church. Jesus came not to just give us nice ideas, not to just give us a truth we can think about in our head, but he came to be tangible, a tangible expression of God's grace. And he wants us to do the same as he transforms us from the inside. We're to live that change out in this world. Being his hands and his feet, whether it's Lazarus at the gate, whether it's somebody we're struggling in conflict with, God wants to be at the heart of it. He wants to walk us through it. He wants to be the grace that helps to change us. And so as he was sitting around the table, as he was partaking of food, he picked up the bread and said, this is my body. Jesus, we confess our need for you. We confess that sometimes we like the way old creation works because maybe it benefits us. We love how it works because things are comfortable. God, convict us of that when it prevents us from being your hands and feet, when it becomes what possesses our heart instead of you, God. God, you bring good news. You are our good news, and we thank you for your gift of salvation. We thank you for your forgiveness, Jesus. We thank you for this gift of your grace. Amen.